Welcome to Chit Chat Money. Today is Tuesday, November 17th. Uh, we have an interview today with Muji at Hypergrowth. Um, that's his name that he goes by, and you can find his website. It's Muji at hyper, or is it hypergrowth.com. Yeah, it's three H's. We'll link it in the show notes, but it is fantastic stuff for anyone that wants to go into the details of software. Another interview where I learned so much that I'm probably going to have to listen to it again to get yeah, all the details. Definitely. Uh, and then... Before we get to our stories for the week, we have a word from our sponsor, right? Yeah. CCM with uh, Seven Invest. Yes. I kind of butchered that, but it's Seven Invest is our partners now. And uh, do you want to give the sales pitch? Sure. So you can get ten dollars off your first month. It's usually seventeen dollars a month for their seven stock picks each month uh, from their now seven advisors. We'll have to get the new one on. Um, right. I'm forgetting your name, but Sammy. Yeah, we'll get her on the show. Yeah, we're getting her on the show at one point. Uh, But you get $10 off, so it's only $7 your first month. And it's not like you're locked into anything. So you can go try out the service and you can help us out as well by using the code CCM at checkout. Great deal. And uh, I will say that reverse psychology that we used last week where we said don't (laughs) didn't work. I think it worked. Nice. Yeah, we got a few signups. So follow up on that and just keep not signing up. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. but what's your story for the week? Uh, it's going to be the DoorDash S1. Uh, cool, you know, it's one of the bigger companies in the Valley and one of the bigger IPOs that people are looking forward to, and there's a lot to dig into. Red flags, some good numbers. Okay, and I'm going to be talking Spotify made an acquisition of Megaphone this week, so I'll be talking about that. And then we have, as always, we have current state of Fintwit, Hot Water, Buy, Sell, Hold, and Anecdotal Evidence. Let's go. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are not financial advisors. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guest is not formal advice or a recommendation. Now please enjoy this episode. Okay, welcome in. Who wants to kick things off? You? Yeah, you go ahead. Okay, go ahead. so Spotify acquired Megaphone this week. Uh, it's one of the biggest podcast advertising and publishing companies. It's If you don't know what it is, it's sort of like Anchor. Uh, so they allow podcasters to connect with advertisers, uh, but you have to pay if you're an advertiser to use Megaphone. So it's kind of not necessarily has to be for the bigger podcasts, but you're you make more money if you're one of the bigger podcasts on there because – I think it's what ninety nine dollars a month to be on there. That that was our research, yeah. Okay, and then uh, I, a little more about the acquisition earlier this year. Spotify announced streaming ad insertion, so they mentioned on their press release that this is really just them trying to expand on that. Uh, so advertisers like Wall Street Journal, ESPN, Disney, Bloomberg, LinkedIn—they've all joined Megaphone, and so. Uh, they have their own ads that they insert into podcasts that publish on Megaphone. Am I and, into, I and into their own shows. So you may be confusing that aspect. So all these companies have podcasts as well. Um, so they're able to, and they're all signed up as you know publishers. All these common companies have podcasts and probably a dozen or even a hundred of them. So. Okay. And so uh, previously when we use Anchor, we read the ads. This would be them doing ad reads and just inserting it onto our podcast right uh, i believe so yeah okay. so some of it uh, well we haven't used it so i don't know for sure but i think some of it might be read it yourself they insert it depending on what target audience they want or they just get it from a third party okay 
Okay. And Spotify paid apparently $235 million for this deal, uh, but they didn't give the specifics on that. I couldn't find it in the press release either. Uh, but if you think about it for the advertisers, they can really sort of uh, – I mean, I guess this is the podcast customer value prop anyways is that you are getting a targeted ad. Right. Yeah. You're yeah. getting a lot of data around who your customer is, and you can easily target those ads by picking whatever podcast they listen to. Um, apparently, podcast advertising is up nearly 100% year over year for Spotify. Um, what do you think of the deal? Well, I have three thoughts. I think probably they're overpaying um, if you were looking at it as a strict acquisition. However, it's going to help megaphone get better supply because spotify has probably all the deals they work for their music advertising they're just going to have a lot more access to get more you know a supply of ads which will help for the large demand for podcast advertising because there's a lot more demand right now than supply um you know there's a ton of shows out there with a lot of listens i mean even like ourselves that could monetize if they had the ability to um, and this will help with that. And then again, it worries me that they already spent all this money on Anchor, um, and we feel a bit that they're dropping the ball over there. So is that money been wasted? Um, I, I don't know what they're doing with this compared to Anchor because maybe they put the Spotify streaming ad insertions onto Anchor eventually. Uh, but they, they paid up for that as well, I think, like a hundred and something million dollars. Um, I don't know what the return on that investment is going to be now. Right. And. Do you think it'd be a good idea for Megaphone to allow like any publisher to advertise with them? So right now it's kind of like the bigger companies. I know Gimlet Media, I think, has uh, advertisements with Megaphone. Um, but, Sorry, they're a podcast publisher, and actually Spotify owns them. So it's yeah, the opposite. can they do? Can't they do ads as well? Uh, I mean, they. As that's, a what, public- that's what I'm trying to get to. Is like. Do you think it'd be a, good, be a good idea for us as a podcast to be able to oh, advertise on other podcasts through I mean, Megaphone? May, potentially, potentially that could help increase the supply. That is the big issue right now. Or even maybe artists, like yeah. musicians, whoever's trying to use Spotify as sort of their audience. Hmm. Maybe they could do it as well. I mean, yeah, there just there seems like there's a bottleneck of not being able to get ads out onto shows and there, there's got to be a way to solve that and hopefully they, they can do it i'm just not sure how this reminds me a lot of the connected tv space yeah too. like it, it's early days but if i'm an advertiser i'm definitely not on radio which is sort of the linear tv to the podcast market mm-hmm. I, I, wouldn't you be moving over to podcast i think you would be trying uh but uh, for one, the way that podcasts are set up, you have the RSS feed. Historically, it was hard to get get any data off of that. But if someone's on Spotify or Apple, um, I know Apple doesn't really do much with it. They just kind of have the app. But if you're Spotify or maybe even another platform, you have the data on the users. If you Spotify especially, just because of the users that have been on with their music tastes, all that stuff, uh, they can probably get more targeted things. Uh, but typically with the RSS feeds, it was tough to gather any data you know, like any ratings and stuff like that. Okay. What's your story for the week? Uh, it is the DoorDash S1. So they dropped it last week. Not the one we wanted to see. I know Airbnb dropped today, but we didn't get to it just because it dropped right as we're recording, basically. Um, and we want to see the Roblox and a few others. And DoorDash, we already knew we probably weren't going to like it, but hey, it's, it's, good to, it's good to look at it. So their mission, they say, is to grow and power local economies. Seems cool to me. Seems fine. Um, I kind of take offense to that because restaurants always complain that they're killing the restaurant industry. So 
I don't know how much they're powering local economies, but hey, you know, it's a good mission to have. It's not like a it's not like a crazy one. I would like I'd almost be more optimistic about a business if they just said, "Yeah, like we thought this would be a good idea and a good way to make a lot of money." Yeah. Like you could say that like you don't have to change the world or just take it out like the S1 now they dress up the first 10 pages to make it look like some I don't even know. It's like an art show. Yeah, it's like an art show. It's like a slide deck. It's tough. It's just, I don't know. Those They always turn me off, although it doesn't mean the business is bad. Um, Their sales are up, as people probably expect, 226% in the first months of 2020, first nine months. Net loss, though, still of $149 million. They hit a quote, I'm doing air quotes here, adjusted EBITDA margin of 5%. I say that because there's a number down here that really skewed that. Um, that I think they were misleading people with. Uh, they're now at 50% market share in the U.S. Uh, I guess that shows how selling really? the... They've grown quite quickly. They had, I think, a strategy of two undercutting people, um, which isn't sustainable, but they've also gone to the more suburban areas. I know the college town we were at had it. They were the only ones there. Um, that's an advantage they've given into where the suburban areas might actually be you know, tougher maybe to be profitable, but not like unprofitable. Um, so it's kind of cool that they've able, they were down to like 20% market share in the, in 2018. And now they've gone all the way to 50%. So they're doing really, really well. Although they're, they're burning they're, a lot of money to get there. Though. They're burning a lot of money and the business model is, I still think it's concerning. I, I have concerns over the business model. Um, they had $315 million in operating cash flow for the first nine months of 2020. However, Four hundred fifty-two million of that was accrued expenses, which means that these are non-cash expenses that they had to realize, but they haven't paid out yet. Which would be either to restaurants or their dashers, which is their drivers. Um, I maybe that's part of the business where stuff sitting in maybe escrow, or they haven't had to pay out people on a monthly basis, something like that. But if all your cash flow is just based on accrued expenses where when you stop growing, that's not going to be a benefit anymore, I, I really don't think that means you're actually generating free cash flow. Yeah, that's not a great look. And just looking at the numbers, I didn't look at the S1, but they, they look okay. But keep in mind, they just were the beneficiaries of the maybe the greatest catalyst in the history of mankind yeah. for food delivery. And like, you still can't be really cash flow positive? Yeah, and it's like, well, once they hit scale, it's like, how could they reach more scale? It's fifty percent market share, and you're you've got half of the market share in the U.S. When restaurants literally can't, uh, people can't dine in, so they need you. Yeah, and you can't be like truly cash flow positive. It doesn't, I don't know, it doesn't bode well for the business. Model. So, are you more or less interested? I'm pretty. I've been uninterested yeah. in ride sharing or uh, food delivery. That whole market. It feels like no matter which way you look at it, you're going to end up exploiting one of the stakeholders. Yeah. And in this case, it's probably the restaurants. If restaurants don't like it, I mean, that's a very valuable stakeholder yeah. in this chain. The only time I use DoorDash is if I'm going to a chain like Chipotle because I know that they have the bargaining power to actually make a good deal with DoorDash. But if I'm using a local restaurant, never do that because – Just um, call in and pick it up. Yeah, if you're doing that, um, it, it the the history shows or I guess the studies or the news stories have shown that DoorDash really screws those people over. 
And then another thing that does concern me is that Domino's has gone the like, no, we're not taking any third-party delivery apps whatsoever. That, I mean, I, are other people going to repeat that? I know that DoorDash has a partnership with Chipotle and likely a few other restaurants to do exclusive delivery through their apps. But could some people replicate that? I, I think there is a potential. Yeah, I mean, that's op- like building your own fleet or own food delivery system is probably really cost intensive but it's worked for Domino's. domino's it's yeah it's worked incredibly well um all right is that it for your whole story that's good yep okay current state of fintwit i only have one thing um see. yeah i got one did you see the stuff about arc invest arc invest yeah it was going to be one of my hot waters but we can talk about it right now yeah so they didn't really there was this article that came out and they didn't talk too much about the specifics of the deal but essentially a few years back they took a stake at, I think it's a private equity firm that backs fund managers. Uh, they took a stake in ARK Invest and then uh, had the rights to take another stake later on. It was kind of like a call option. Resolute Management is the name. Right. And apparently, Kathy Wood is upset about this. Shocking. And and yeah, okay. Like, yeah, you've done a good job, but you had to know. You gave them the ability to do this and you're upset that they did it? Like... Yeah, you gave them a gun and the option to shoot you, and they shot you, and you're blaming like that's your fault. Yeah, and it sucks because their management firm is worth a lot now uh, because they're on fire. I mean, it's and it it sucks because they're not selling out at the top. Someone's just exercising the right to take over control, so it's not even like they can cash out when they they're maybe never in a better environment. They call you know they've been the biggest bull in Tesla, Teladoc, Square. They've been right so often recently that. They're the number one ETF that's non-passive. Um, yeah, a, I'm, I don't know what they, they they shouldn't be complaining about this. It it's seems a bad like a look. Bad look yeah. to be like these guys are the enemy here when you gave them the ability to do this. Yeah, there's no way. Uh, the, well, I guess hindsight's twenty twenty, but you could say like, all right, you wouldn't be here if Resolent didn't start you up. You know. Yeah, and I imagine there's a reason that they got those terms. Yeah, you might have needed them at some point. Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, what's what did you have? Well, I don't like to. Uh, I try not to make fun of individual people unless they're actually famous. So the, all these people are famous. Uh, the VC tweet trifecta this week. You may have seen the. I don't know if they blocked anyone that's not from the valley. Um, I don't know if they're just muting any of the people that criticize them. But they there's been some tweets out there from you know Paul Graham, Sam Altman, the Naval guy. Uh, that people were like, what are you talking about? The one about telling your 11-year-old about finance, you know? Did you see that one? Okay, so this one is from Paul Graham. Again, I'm using his real name because he's a famous guy and he doesn't give a rat's ass about us. Uh, I told my 11-year-old about the existence of finance. I'd willingly answered. First off, it's an 11-year-old. You're just bragging that your kid's smart. Um, I'd willingly answered all his questions about drugs and organized crime and sexual practices, but I found myself reluctant to tell him there were people who made money just from betting whether prices of things would go up or go down. And I think he was inferring to the invest public investment community, but he's one of the biggest VCs of all time. I mean, does he need a mirror? I don't know. Does this guy not own a mirror? I I hate when they put the age of the kid. In there. Oh, of the like, kid. You can just yeah. say I was talking to my kid. Told my kid about year old humble brag, no big deal. Told my kid about Berkshire's share buyback program. They were really impressed. <laughs> uh, all right, this other one is from Sam Altman. I think this was another one where he may need a mirror. Um, he said, "The faker the job, the more credentials matter." Uh, 
I, that's just uh, I I uh, we're people that are going about things without the credentials that some people would and you like. Look at but, his bio; it's like GP. Yeah, yeah. And then there was the I know I hate that one wasn't too bad. Then there's the guy that the Naval Bros. Um, do you know Naval? The guy yeah. that has no followers. I like some of his stuff. I thought his book was interesting, but they tried to pretend that he invented leverage. I mean. They were like, yeah, there's this thing called leverage the earth or Archimedes. You know, give me a long enough lever, I can move the earth. It's like, yeah, we knew about leverage since Rome and Greek and Egypt. I don't know. He's got quite the cult following. Oh, yeah. He's got interesting stuff. Um, I don't know. It's Venture it, capital is a weird world. It's, it's like, weird. It's weird. It is. There's like a very real Silicon Valley bubble. Oh, yeah. And then there's Corey Hofstein, a great Fintwit guy. He said, I thought we had peak Thinkfluencer think think earlier this week when someone gave Naval credit for creating the mental model of leverage, quotes. But then we got Paul Graham on finance and this absolute gem within 24 hours of each other. Clearly still early innings. I was like, yeah, we might be. The VC, I don't like to comment on them because I don't want to get blocked because I like have access to these jokes, but I don't know. It makes me... Doesn't it give like a bad taste for venture capital as yeah. a whole? There's like some really some of the smartest people in the world are in venture capital, but yeah, no, I get that you don't need to have a credentials to be a good VC, but when you say that in general, like doctors, engineers, PhDs, lawyers, like they need credentials, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, next, we have our interview with Muji. What did you, we recorded this a while ago? But yeah. what did you kind of like about it? Hmm. I liked how you explained the cybersecurity stuff, how it all fits into the one like edge networks, how there's a little bit of a network effect because they're all spread out around the world, how they innovated and built the security stuff, cybersecurity, excuse me, in the cloud. Um, and the number one companies we talked about there would be CrowdStrike, um, which he liked a lot. And what was the other security company? Zscaler. Zscaler, yeah. How they work with each other, why people would use both, things like that. It was just interesting because I had uh, no idea. Yeah, and I, if you are invested in any of these companies or you've thought about it, whether it's Fastly, Zscaler, CrowdStrike, with, what's the last one? Cloudflare, was that was that a... Cloudflare, yes. If, if you're invested in any of those things or looking into it, this is a really informative interview. It's not typically our kind of business, but we learned it a ton because we had a very low base to begin with, but it was really helpful. So here you go. Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi includes advanced security to help protect all your connected devices. You'll get real-time alerts. Oh, like this one. So you don't have to worry about malware. Or when your kid downloads a song from a shady link. And now all your computer can play is red color, red color, where are you? All blocked, thanks to advanced security, included with Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi. Advanced security must be enabled in the Panoramic Wi-Fi app. Restrictions apply. Today we are welcomed by Muji at Hypergrowth. That's probably how you know him. I believe his, what's your Twitter handle again? At Hypergrowth with three H's. Three H's. Three H's, there we go. And you can find his website as well. It's, uh, I'm, I'm sure if you look up Hypergrowth with three H's, you'll find it. Um, but before we get into sort of the crux of the discussion, which is cybersecurity and um, cloud or edge computing, why don't we start with your career? How did you get started in investing to begin with? Uh, so I'm a software developer. I've worked for myself for uh, decades as a contractor, but I've always been in and around tech and databases and data, which is now obviously 
huge topic right. since it's running the world. Uh, but I got into um, investing at the right around the tech bubble of 2000, 2001, a little bit before that, and started to get into tech stocks. Uh, didn't really know what I was doing. And obviously, there were some inflated values back then around 2000. And so I got into the Motley Fool right around that time, got into their forums and some of their newsletters. And so I've been investing since uh, for now two decades. Wow, that's a long time. Yeah, and if you, uh, I guess this is a, a unique way to start. What's the difference between right now with maybe some of the people that are arguing that there's inflated values? Is there any difference between any of the frothy things going on in the current market versus uh, 2000? Um, have you noticed anything different? Yeah, yes and no. Uh, certainly people like to paint a broad brush with that sort of comment. Um, but back in the dot-com era, it was all about uh, dreams. You know, there, there was no revenues. It was all dreams. And so these are, you know, companies today have revenues, um, are working their way to profit, profitability and or already profitable. And so it's really night and day comparing those eras. That said, there are still some companies, Nikola Motors, for instance, that are, are pipe dreams and you're really yeah. betting on a dream, which I do not invest that way at all. Yeah. I like, I like concrete facts in the financials about how a company is executing before I invest. Yeah, we're, we're the same way. Um, and I guess if we want to get into how do you specifically look at companies, I mean, what do you look for in stuff that you invest in? Do you kind of stay in your software expertise and Next, how do you define hypergrowth? So I kind of come from the David Gardner school of thought with, with rule breakers. And so I was always intrigued by that uh, element of the Motley Fool where they'd really, I don't know, I guess you call it home run bets of mm -hmm. companies that have uh, a huge amount of potential and are doing well now. They should continue to do well in the future. Um, but, you know, I call my blog hypergrowth in my Twitter handle. That's kind of the starting point for what I look at. A company has to be performing extremely well on the top line, has to have you know, 50% or higher revenue growth year over year and, and have some huge impact at the top. But then I looked you know, deeper than that and this, it gets a little more intangible, I guess you'd say. But I like to see um, customers flocking to the company and spending more. So net retention rate or expansion rate uh, should be above 100%. So that recurring revenue model should be in place. Uh, and then I like to see signs of operational leverage. I don't necessarily look for income. I like to see le signs of leverage where they can really be swinging towards income at, at their whim. And so, you know, the, the model with these hypergrowth companies is let's collect all the customers we can. And so that's you know, kind of the starting point is, are they in that mode where they're really amassing a tidal wave of growth right up front, and then can they swing towards profitability? And ultimately, that's where the profits will ultimately come. So when a company, so you said you try to aim for companies that are um, hyper growing, I guess is the way you phrase it. But um, when a company goes from just that growth phase to generating profits, and maybe there's a slowdown on the top line. Is that a deal breaker for you if it goes below 50% revenue growth? Or is that just an entry point, kind of? I, I don't really look at entry points, personally. Okay. I, I, it is slightly concerning if, if the revenue is dropping under 50% quickly or um, 
you know, there's, there's signs that something's faltering. Maybe there's signs of the sales department faltering or something like that, or some kind of upper management change or change in theory, or they're deciding to switch uh, tactics of how their platform works or making major architectural shifts or things like that. Those are all pretty huge red flags to me. Um, however, it's, I, I do invest in companies that are growing less than 50%, but they're ones that started above 50% and have slowly fallen under that as I watch the signs of that operational leverage and profits coming in and filling that after the fact. Okta is, is one example of where it's a company that's under 50%. When I first started investing, it was maybe in 60%, but it's just swung towards profitability and, and it's still having a massive number of, of customers flock to it. Uh, another sign I look for is, you know, I like to get a kind of holistic view of the of their platform to see where the platform is now, but then where are they expanding their platform? How can they leverage the architecture they have into new directions, new TAM? You know, that's kind of getting more into the intangible side, and it's a matter of knowing the tech. And that's what I kind of focus on in my blog is explaining the tech for investors so that they can kind of understand where the potential is in these platforms and how they can start pivoting and adding TAM from here. Yeah, we appreciate that because there's a lot of us that are in our boat where we're not an expert, we're not a professional in the software industry. And these companies, especially the B2B ones, can be tough to um, understand. The terminology is a little confusing uh, oh, yeah. at times. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's, I mean, tech is such an acronym heavy yep. industry as it is. And so you just, I don't know, you can get lost really quickly. But it's... So, it, I, I luckily, it's, it's funny, these two questions back to back is, you know, where did I get started? And I told you I was into software development and I actually do software architecture. So I design, you know, how systems work. I, I finally realized that I explain how tech works so much in my job, you know, to explaining to customers, explaining to management about how these things piece together. That's, I fi finally realized I can leverage that in my investing and, I deep dive into these tech companies and it gives me a better understanding of their platform. It's, it's win-win. I can explain this to other people and, and weave a story around it, but I can also understand it for myself for my own investment purposes. Right. Um, in terms of the hyper growth part of your investing there, it, I'm imagining a company that sustains 50% revenue growth. I mean, they can't obviously do that for a very, very long time or else, you know, just the law of large numbers. Um, do you end up looking for smaller companies just naturally? It depends. Uh, there's a lot of companies that are growing significantly, Shopify, for instance, that actually grew beyond what I normally like to hold. I don't like to hold larger cap stocks because I feel like there is less runway for them to grow. And that's one I sold prematurely. And it cost me because it continued to go up and have a lot of success. And now with the pandemic is, is clearly well above 50% growth uh, once again. So yeah. it's, right, it's, we, it's, it's, it's not, it's like I said, it's the entry point for me. Okay. I need to see that execution up front, but then I look at what do the customers look like? What does the platform look like? Do I see the signs of leverage? You know, can I see um, underlying margins like um, operational loss? Does it jump from 40%, negative 40% to negative 15%? Year over year, you know, I, I like to see signs that it's um, making moves to the positive. If it's if it's going the wrong way, that's that's a negative sign for me, regardless of the hyper growth. So it's just the entry point into looking at these companies. Okay. We uh, we want to get into our cybersecurity part of the discussion. Um, the two companies that we're really going to focus on here are Zscaler and CrowdStrike. 
Um, so how are those two different? And then basically how does a company use multiple cybersecurity services? So how many different areas of cybersecurity are there to fill? Can a company use multiple at once? There are endless uh, layers to, to cybersecurity. Uh, I, we were just, uh, October is cybersecurity month. We just missed it. Oh. And last year, go. October, I released a, a blog series that was kind of multi-part called Flavors of Security, where I really dove into the tech behind cybersecurity, where the attacks come from, what are the attacks, and then what are the ways to block those attacks. And kind of at the end of it, start talking about zero trust and CARTA, some of the moves towards uh, zero trust initiatives, which is kind of the next gen of cybersecurity. And so CrowdStrike and Zscaler are companies I know well. They're, they're in that next gen um, category, I'd say, and actually covered them in depth in that series along with Okta. And so they're, they're different, they're protecting different things. And so Zscaler is all about protecting traffic. So it's the traffic between points. So I have users across the globe that are all talking to this internal service. I can protect my users as they go out and talk to Microsoft Office and Google Docs, Workday, you know, any of the enterprise SaaS applications. They can be protected in that, but then they can also be protected as they're talking to internal APIs, internal apps, that sort of thing. So that's kind of the two sides of Zscaler. Whereas uh, CrowdStrike is all about endpoint protection. So endpoint being the computer, the mobile device that needs protection. And so the way to think that about them is the, the easy kind of non-technical way to think about them is that they're the next generation of antivirus. So antivirus used to be this thing that sat on your computer, you know, your McAfee and Norton scanners that sat and looked for certain signatures and files. CrowdStrike does that on your device or your deployed workstations or your mobile phones, your servers. And they look for, um, they're kind of constantly scanning proactively for anomalous behaviors. So they're not, so they are partially looking at file signatures and things like that, but they're also looking at memory use. They're looking at um, usage patterns and trying to determine anything that looks out of the ordinary. And so both of those are you know, kind of agents that you install and uh, th those SaaS companies, Zscaler and, and CrowdStrike, have a complete view of the globe at any time. You know, they've got millions of points that they're protecting. And, you know, in one case, the traffic between them, in the other case, the devices themselves. Okay. And so then originally I had in the cybersecurity uh, section here, some questions on Datadog, but you, uh, through our direct messages, told me that's more observability. How does that differ from what CrowdStrike and Zscaler are doing? So Datadog, I, I don't consider part of cybersecurity. Okay. Uh, it's, it's a little more nuanced than that, but um, they are in the observability space, which is all about, look, you, the IT staff, need to see what's going on. So you need to look at the logs, you need to look at um, output from your uh, applications. You need to look at the uh, kind of the real-time metrics of all your systems, meaning your servers, uh, your database server, um, your web app server, those sorts of things. So it's all about observability, which is being able to view your infrastructure. 
You know, so now in the world of the cloud, half your infrastructure or more to 100% of your infrastructure might be in AWS or Azure. It's, you practically have zero visibility into that. You don't run those servers. So you need your servers to tell you what they're doing. You know, what's the CPU usage? What's the memory usage? That sort of thing. They're starting to pivot into security, which is a new uh, angle they're taking their existing platform. It kind of changes the audience of their platform. Their platform is for developers and IT staff. Now it's a little more for cybersecurity professionals as well. So they are a cybersecurity company. But yeah, I just don't, I don't, I guess put... Uh, Datadog and, and CrowdStrike in the same industry. Okay, but they may, and that's, I guess, the concern a lot of people have is they may slowly start overlapping and start competing with each other. Is that going to happen anytime soon, you think? Uh, yes. Uh, yes and no. I okay. don't think Datadog's going to get necessarily into threat detection. Okay. Where they have built tools is once you know that some incident occurs in your infrastructure, you can start tracing through to see what it is. But it's more focused on, oh, I ran out of disk space on this server, or we used up all the CPU, or so many requests came into our web server, it overwhelmed our web server. It's more about that focus of maintaining infrastructure. What they added with security is on top of that, uh, looking for cyber threats. But they're what's called a SIEM, which is, is a monitoring interface into cybersecurity. And so they're still staying within observability, but they're not doing the actual threat detection. They're just doing, giving you tools that your team can identify incidents and start to research them and keep your notes in, this, in the same place. Okay. And then I think, Whereas, I, know, I think I know what your answer will be to this question, but do you see this space as zero sum then, or do you think there can be a lot of winners in the cybersecurity area? I mean, do the customers ha use multiple of these offerings? Like does an individual customer use Datadog, Zscaler, and CrowdStrike all at the same time? Or is it just one company that's going to win it all? It is uh, definitely the latter. They all start working together. In fact, those two companies, Zscaler and CrowdStrike, do have a partnership to work together. Okay. Okta and CrowdStrike have a partnership to work together for their respective things. Um, and so all of these companies are starting to work together more and more. The way cybersecurity is looked at is layers of an onion. And so first off, they protect different things. And so you want to buy them together to cover both aspects of all my servers and all the traffic going between them or all my devices and all the traffic going between them. But um, so, but they're also all moving kind of around into the same space. So it's definitely a frenemy sort of relationship right. with some of these things because they're starting to do some of the same things like Okta and Zscaler are both getting into zero trust, which is, you know, ways of accessing your internal APIs and controlling that tightly. Um, you know, they're starting to, to be in the same space in that regard. And so it's interesting to watch them kind of move and pivot their platform. Uh, CrowdStrike is a great example, actually they have a threat intel platform, you know, so they, it's not just observing things. It's, it's about detecting anomalous behavior. And so one of the things I like about this space in general with cybersecurity, it is a complete benefit over the old way of doing things, which is all networking appliances from Cisco, Palo Alto firewalls. You built up a castle and moat scenario in your enterprise and you build a protective buffer around your entire network and you tightly control who can come in and out of your network. That can't exist in today's world. You've got all these SaaS tools. You've got multiple locations. Now you've got so many different remote workers to protect. 
There is no boundary anymore. So what CrowdStrike does is they have all these endpoints that they protect across the globe on one platform. What that allows them to do is when they see anomalous behavior, they can put it together between multiple people. So that never existed before in cybersecurity. You're, everyone's their own island in cybersecurity. You had your own firewalls set up and you could only see your logs and your intrusions. Now you can see intrusions across multiple customers at once. Oh, all these, air, you know, it's all coming from one global region and they're attacking multiple ones of our customers. CrowdStrike can act upon it and snuff it out in an instant across all their customer base at once. And so it's just a totally new paradigm in cybersecurity that didn't exist five years ago that these SaaS tools allow. Yeah, and that is, is that because of the cloud native um, aspect of these companies or is there anything else besides that? It's, it's cloud native for sure. Uh, and it's, it's a slightly different advantages. It's, it's, it's the age of data centers. So everything's coming about the edge and edge networks. Right. They're all able to spread and have servers around the globe so they can protect around the globe. And, all, and then they build infrastructure to interconnect them. Um, but absolutely, the answer is yes to your question. Cloud native is what enables this. You've got instant scale capabilities and global reach that way. And so this wasn't possible before. Okay. Okay. And then, oh, go ahead, Ryan. I was going to say, is it hard? I mean, well, how hard is it for the customers to leave? And as far as like moat goes for these companies, can a startup come in and disrupt what they're doing and a, and a customer can just switch on a whim or is it they're locked in and there's huge switching costs? Somewhere in between. Okay. It's, uh, there are more competitors coming up. And so if you're, Tied, tied into Zscaler, it, 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 it's twofold, it, it, or, or really both angles. Zscaler is an incredibly sticky service. Once you go to using an edge network as your enterprise network, which is basically happening there, you're, you're doing away with trying to protect your network between HQ and your workers or HQ and satellite offices. And now just using kind of an edge network as your enterprise network. Um, with Zscaler, you are protecting traffic. It's an interesting paradigm. They've, they've got an edge network. You as a customer are on your work laptop. It's all about protecting the enterprise workforce. You're on your laptop. You use their agent that you've installed. It connects to the nearest edge network. And then your traffic for the majority of the rest of the globe is protected in their edge network. And then it exits the other end of the edge network and talks to whatever service you're talking to. And then it repeats that on the way back. And then CrowdStrike does that same thing. These are extremely sticky services. So once you move over to them, they, you're kind of locked in. And Zscaler in particular is incredibly difficult to implement. They work with a wide variety of system implementers in order to do so. I think that's a little bit of their downfall and I'm slightly negative on that on them because of that, because other services have arisen that do very much the same thing. It, you connect to an edge network from your device in a protected way. It goes through the edge network. It comes out the other end and talks to whatever web service you're talking to. And then the reverse happens now has cropped up with Cloudflare, which is an easier to implement service. And so yeah. Ultimately, the answer is yes and no. It's a sticky service. Their customers are going to stick with them. I think their customers do have other options if they want to go through a different implementation. Um, and CrowdStrike as well, there are other vendors, uh, Carbon Black uh, that VM bought. Um, 
uh, a handful of others that all got swept up by other companies that are trying to roll up cybersecurity. CrowdStrike's unique moat, I guess you'd say, is that they have what is called crowdsourced threat intel. And it's again exploiting what I was explaining before that they pool all of that intel from all of the customers across the globe into one place and are looking for threats across the globe. And so again, if they see uh, similar looking attacks on multiple customers, they can snuff those out immediately. And so there is a moat there, but someone could ultimately decide to uh, use an alternate. It, it, it might come down to then price and implementation differences. So each additional customer that they have is a value add to the next customer. So it's a little bit of an economies of scale and network effects. Is that, is, can In that happen cases. or is it? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's definitely a, a, a network effect because the better the, I mean, it's just the way your algorithms are going to work, the more inputs into your machine learning, the, the, you know, more, accurate the outputs and right. so i think you the can more people that things. they can see the threats across the better okay okay and then if we look more at the stocks um they're trading i mean both of these companies are trading at very premium valuations um uh, is there a reason that they should be trading at these high valuations um at least looking at the sales ratios can they grow into these premium valuations very easily um it's just tough you know because they're one of the most highly valued companies on the market right now Yes. Uh, I, I, I own CrowdStrike and not Zscaler personally because of the difficulty in implementing Zscaler. Um, I, I think, and they had some stale stumbles about a year ago. Uh, although they're certainly doing well at, uh, with work from home right now. So they've right. kind of um, reignited their, their hyper growth. Um, I think they will grow into these. You know, going back to what I look for in a company, hypergrowth is the entry point. I like to continue to see it, but I mean, just think about the number of customers that CrowdStrike is is gaining right now. They were growing 100% customers wow. uh, growth uh, year over year for a while now. And so they're just so much uh, scale is coming in to the to the size of their platform that as soon as the operational leverages kicks in, they're, they're going to be extremely profitable. And so, you know, potentially they could be disrupted. I think that's a long way off and we'll have signs of that if that does occur. So the answer is yes, I own them because exactly, I think they're just going to continue to scale top line and then the bottom line is going to scale from there. Okay. And then are there any smaller cybersecurity companies that you're looking at? I know you just mentioned that there was a bunch that have gotten rolled up into some bigger companies, but are, are there any ones that are, uh, you know, on their own and publicly traded? Uh, certainly Okta is a fantastic company, also extremely sticky that they are focused on identity. And so they're again, different from uh, CrowdStrike and Zscaler. They're focused on the identity side of things. So establishing you that you are who you are. Um, but again, they're getting into zero trust and, and Carta methodologies, which zero trust is all about not trusting anyone. And so always making sure that someone establishes their identity up front. And so all these companies are starting to make moves on that front as well. Carta is kind of taking zero, uh, uh, zero trust and then adding in machine learning and behavioral analysis. And that's exactly a company that CrowdStrike just purchased is behavioral analysis of user authentication wow. about a company called Preempt. And so they're all starting to swirl around zero trust. It, it, it's, it's, it is the next generation of security. 
and all of them are starting to swirl around edge networks as well. It's starting to use and leverage, you know, kind of these global networking traffic platforms for handling um, and protecting traffic across the globe. So it's not going through a variety of switches and you don't know where your network traffic, your internet is going. Right. And I guess that's a good segue because our next segment, Ryan, you have a more uh, question? One more question. Okay. Well, if, we'll be. <laughs> if, you, if you thought that one of these companies, if there was one cybersecurity company that you thought could do everything, um, and it was sort of zero sum in that regard. So let's say they could eat up Datadog's sort of market. Observability, um, yeah. Yeah, and just take over the whole cybersecurity space. Which one would it be? Yeah, we didn't, uh, Elastic is another one like Datadog. That's all about the, the, the theme, who, just the observability part. It's not okay. going to come from them. Uh, who would it be? I mean, uh, so where we're, Segwaying into Cloudflare is making a lot of really interesting moves in cybersecurity. Huh. Um, that's one that's certainly rolling up a lot of different features. And uh, so we can definitely, that's a great segue into that. Um, as far as other companies that you were asking, Brett, I, 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 don't, I don't see any. You know, I see Ping ID is often mentioned, but it's growing less than half of what Okta, the market leader, is. And so, as I said before, I think you're going to see upstarts coming from a mile away. There's a couple of private ones like Sentinel One that, that seem pretty interesting uh, on the Datadog front, kind of Datadog and, and cybersecurity related. That seems pretty interesting using uh, machine learning heavily, but I, I just don't see disruption coming easily. These are already the disruptors to kind of the Cisco and Palo Alto and FireEye uh, old school, I'd, I'd say, of cybersecurity. And so, um, you know, I look forward to what's what what's coming next, but Cloudflare is the one that's of interest to me. Yeah, so I guess we're, we're going to discuss Cloudflare and Fastly. Uh, if listeners know that we discussed uh, Fastly in depth with Tim Byers, I think about two months ago. So if you want to learn about what Fastly does, uh, we're going to be discussing, you know, if the company, what the company does a little bit here. But if you want an overview, go back and listen to that one. But we want to talk about Cloudflare, just get an introduction on that. What do they do? And then what is their new cloud-based security um, offering? So they both came from the CDN space to sum them up very quickly. And I do have a blog post. Feel free to see my, <laughs> my, my blog as well. There we go. Called, uh, what are edge networks? Uh, that talk, kind of talk about where they came up from, which is both of them were focused on content caching. So it is creating an edge network, a, a network that spans the globe uh, that has several points of presence, which are edge servers that sit in various towns and they can cache content in Chicago. And so all the users across multiple states within that region of the United States can call that versus a cache server in Hong Kong that's serving up Southeast Asia versus a cache server in London that's serving up uh, you know, that portion of Europe. And so it's about putting, pushing content off of the origin servers where it's very expensive to maintain infrastructure and handle a lot of requests. You push that content out, whether it's video, blog posts, magazine articles, whatever, can be pushed out to cache and served up repeatedly from cache. And so that's kind of where, I mean, Cloudflare did other things beyond that, but they were both generally lumped into the CDN space. And Fastly is, is you know, solely a, a, a CDN at this point. Okay. Um, so content delivery network is what CDN stands for. They are both upstarts in that particular commodity industry. And so, you know, this is an industry ruled by Akamai. 
and several other companies exist in this space and they're all competing and it's been fairly well established what you know cdns provide for you but where edge networks get really interesting is that fastly and cloudflare in particular have designed their platform architecture around edge networks which is a programmable software defined network so they kind of don't use the old model of you know kind of expensive hardware to enter network their their locations they're able to use software to handle network routing and so they have basically built programmable interfaces over those networks and so not only do you have all these cache servers but you can control how traffic flows between them very easily um, that's not something that i would say akamai has um, and so they're putting really powerful servers all around the globe have these networking capabilities in, in between them. And now they're both expanding or have expanded into edge compute, which is allowing you a developer to run programs on those, what were formerly cache servers. You can now be running actual applications and have dynamic content instead of just static content. Okay. So how are, you might have already, you might have briefly answered this, but how do Cloudflare and Fastly differ? Yeah, because we've heard one, Fastly's premium and Cloudflare is, you know, everyone can use it. Is that the way to look at it or? Uh, yeah, I mean, that uh, to me, it's a little simplistic, I guess. Um, and certainly they have different go-to markets. And so they're very wildly different companies uh, in, in how they execute. So Fastly is all about getting premium names in next-gen web so pinterest shopify you know these these premium companies doordash you know all these names that are doing extremely well doing really interesting things with their web apps they sign them up and handhold them very tightly to get their developers onto their platform and so they've got a, a, a massive amount of bandwidth around the globe and they kind of sign up um, these premium customers into that bandwidth and so Cloudflare, on the other hand, kind of took CDN is, is kind of one of the things they did. They really focused on security and performance of your website. And so both of these companies can, can, can provide you other things beyond just caching of content. Because they sit between, you know, all the users over here and their web server, they sit, you know, these content companies sit between these two things. And so they can, can, they can help manage the security of your app. Uh, your web application. It's what's called the web application firewall. Okay. Or WAF. Um, again, that's something that you could buy appliances for, just put into your data center. But now this is all handled in the cloud for you. A request is made for your web service. It goes to Fastly or Cloudflare. They can protect you from denial of service attacks, you know, unauthorized users or, you know, other, uh, Attacks, so they kind of provide a layer of cybersecurity over your applications, not over your servers, not over the traffic, but over your applications proper. Okay. What Cloudflare's differing approach is, is that they really focused on that entire uh, platform holistically. So content caching is is really but one corner of it. They really focused on we provide a, a web application firewall. We can stop DDoS attacks, denial of service attacks. Um, all of these other uh, features over your web apps. So come sign your web apps up or your websites and we'll provide a protective layer over them. Whereas Fastly 
pretty focused on content delivery. They want to take your YouTube videos or, or your content and distribute across the globe really quick. They have a, a heavy focus on speed so that if your content changes, they can redistribute your, your cash very quickly across the globe. And so they took different approaches around what to me is a very similar underlying platform, which is a programmable edge network and now uh, edge compute. And so to me, the way I like to look at these companies is that CDN, content management, is but the first application that they've built on their edge network, and it's what financed their edge network. But that's a commodity business, and that's not the way I look at either of these businesses. It is absolutely for what comes next. A, the things that they're building on their own edge network, and B, what are customers going to build on their own, own edge network once they can start programming on them. It's not just... I'm over here making a web post and posting it out. Now your web, entire website can be hosted in the edge network itself. You don't have to have an origin server under the edge network paradigm. So, oh, interesting. so much less, there's a whole wave of other things with edge networks, which is CDNs are solely focused on publishing and consuming content. It's about publishing it out towards the consumers and the consumers are all consuming that content from the cache servers. Edge networks go both ways. There's, it's not a one-way highway. So what you can start doing is internet fast lanes. You can route around um, problematic areas of the internet. Say a, sub, a subsea cable goes bad between you know, Asia and North America. You can route traffic around the globe around that. Um, and so you can basically have a smarter internet. But because of that, it's not just publisher consumer it's that as the internet starts generating more data from the consumers coming inward that's a whole that's flipping the whole cdn paradigm on its head now you've got all this content being generated from iot devices you know every car's got sensors that's being fed in you've got autonomous driving coming obviously that's the the, the easy answer to what edge networks can do um, but you, you've got fleet tracking, you've got asset tracking, you can have sensors in, in manufacturing. All of this is going to be sending data somewhere. Now you can be making decisions at edge compute servers about where that traffic goes, where you're, where you're pulling information from. You can be stitching together responses from multiple places around the globe. And so this, it, it's really changing the paradigm of how network traffic is going to start flowing. It can, it can flow all directions at this point. And your shareholders are both. You're a shareholder of both those companies, right? I am. Okay. okay. So we're gonna try to poke holes in your thesis, then. Please do. Um, this is some we like to do. It's called devil's advocate, where we basically yeah we invented it, right? Right. <laughs> uh, but it's uh, <laughs> just basically we come up with some of the bare points or the counterpoints to the bull thesis, um, and then hopefully you can refute them. So the first one. Uh, that we've heard before is that competition from Amazon or Microsoft is going to be difficult to overcome since they own the origin servers. Yes, they do. They do own the origin servers. Most of the traffic is going to the cloud. And so obviously AWS, Azure, Google cloud are going to be primary beneficiaries of that. All of, all, all of which are rapidly growing. So absolutely. They're the origin servers. The benefit you gain from edge servers is that you are reducing the amount of traffic that hits the origin server. So you're able to pay those cloud providers less because you're only 
they've got a thousandth of the requests coming in as, as cache servers have to be refreshed instead of every single user hitting your API. However, they're, they're not going to like that dynamic and they're probably going to build more and more edge capabilities. What they're not going to have is the programmable network between points that, that doesn't exist within the cloud. All of that is handled by the cloud provider and not exposed to users so much. There's, there's network services, but you don't have the programmable network that you'd have with Fastly or Cloudflare. So I'm not so much worried about that as being a negative. It only provides more interest in edge. And I think the, the customers are going to go to where edge compute is possible now versus what's called Lambda at Edge at AWS, which is basically a part of CloudFront. They, they've even tied it to their CDN. And so to me, it's very backwards thinking by them. Um, they need the, the, the programmable network in between. The more negative case that I see is that it's the age of data centers. Other companies can spin up their own edge networks if they build, they can spin up servers across the globe in any number of uh, kind of data center services companies like Equinix. And I see Zoom, I see Twilio, all building kind of their own edge network and probably not leveraging what's it fastly in Cloudflare. And okay. so there is that potential that they could basically end run around, but that requires a significant amount of developer experience uh, in order to be developing it yourself. And so they provide the easy entry for sure. And so okay. that's where I see maybe more of the disruption coming. Yeah. So it takes a lot of capital investment and it takes a lot of investment from developers. So it's not like Microsoft or Amazon can just, you know, flip a switch and turn on an edge network that can compete with Fastly and Cloudflare. Is that kind of what you're saying or yeah and i don't even see them being interested in that okay you know uh, they're going to continue to 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 innovate at core cloud right I mean, that's their specialty right. i just see i think other companies that are more savvy could potentially be developing it themselves but as you just said it's a it's a crap ton of capital okay and then another thing people mention is that Cloudflare and Fastly are for basic use cases um, at least right now and it's not for the highly technical stuff uh, like self-driving cars and in a internet of things. That's something people have mentioned. Is that something that Fastly and Cloudflare could build out? Or is it like you mentioned, you got to have the third party, um, I forget the technical term, developers on there? Yeah, it's, I, I see where the point is coming from. It is capable of those things right now. What it's not, there, there's a very clear line between what's, ideal for core cloud and what's ideal for edge network to me. And it's it, edge is not going to replace core cloud. Okay. Cause you always need that scalable compute, especially as we get into this land of machine learning and AI, you need a, a, a ton of compute and that's just not going to happen at the edge. You've got a little bit of compute at the edge so you can be making logic decisions, but you're not going to be doing huge calculations at the edge unless you want to be paying out the nose for it. And so, you know, every use case is going to be different. And so maybe that's where this point is coming from is that it's maybe a little more simplistic in that you're making simpler logic decisions. But what it is doing is making a logic decision about where am I going to go ask this server for this response? Or I need information from a couple different places at the globe. I'm going to go get it at once instead of going talking to a core service that's doing that amassing for me. And so there's, uh, I, I think Edge is going to chip away as more and more use cases are exploited by the customers. Okay, and then this one's sort of more Fastly specific, but uh, I think Fastly's been 
sort of on a, the the stock has been on a spiral down um and some people attributed that to tiktok news um and they said tiktok was relying less on them uh so i guess one bear thesis could be that more people are going to follow suit like tiktok did and that's gonna be harmful to fastly yeah usage both goes goes both ways so their usage-based pricing that goes both ways uh, and and so uh, the rug got pulled out from them, underneath them, from a from a their biggest customer. Clearly, uh, what I didn't like is that the management was just really kind of unsure of what was going on, and and probably rightfully so. The customers not informing them, right. but I just didn't particularly like the way they handled it. And so, it's a fairly new executive team or a CEO in particular. And so that's what I was a little disappointed in. Not so much TikTok. Um, you know, that's just a uh, 10% of their traffic. Um, but uh, they, they kept clinging on to some hope that TikTok was coming back. I don't see it happening. So, you know, there's clearly something odd going on where uh, they had to switch to some other platform. I think most of their traffic's going through Akamai right now. So not sure what's going on there, but that's, again, it, it's, uh, a, it's, it's, Fastly is more than Cloudflare, maybe a little more of the aspirational bet in, in what's coming with their platform that just went into limited availability, the Compute for Edge, which is their Edge Compute. Obviously, that's going to completely blow up usage once companies start taking advantage of it. But it's, it's kind of their old business, CDN, which is more commodity, coming head-to-head -head with their new business, which is uh, as an Edge network. And TikTok you know, was making use of them for CDN and so switch to a different CDN. Of course, you hear reports that TikTok is way, is, has uh, degraded their performance and right. has more stuttering and stuff now. And so, you know, clearly the, these are the levers that any company can pull about how performant your web application is. You can control how much cloud infrastructure is delivering your web application or delivering your content. And so they pulled some levers and I don't know. Wanted a lower CDN bill or one that a CDN that was more friendly to China. I think uh, that's what I was going to say. I guess it might be hard for you to tell, but how much of that them lowering their usage with Fastly had to do with their relationship with Fastly versus their relationship with the United States? Yes, exactly. And I think yeah. it's the latter. Okay. Right, right. I don't think I'm. I mean, just from the anecdotal things you hear about the performance being worse over the past month. Clearly, I think they were incredibly pleased with Fastly and, and why they put ten, why they were a ten percent customer. They right, kept right. spending more and more. Right. All right. This is the last one. Um, it's a little bit on Cloudflare because they have the higher valuation, but Fastly's not trading at you know a dirt cheap multiple. Um, you know, at like forty plus times sales, a lot of people say that there's not enough upside for the stock, even if the business does well from here. I, I think that's looking through the lens of what they are or were really okay. with the CDNs. Uh, and again, CDN, extremely commoditized industry, not what I'm looking at. Cloudflare in particular, so both of them are uh, I'm very excited about their edge compute capabilities. And so they're putting the edge into the hands of developers worldwide. I think with Cloudflare more than Fastly, they're taking advantage of their own edge network to build up their products. And you can see all the baby steps they've been taking over the last few years. But at the beginning of this year, they introduced a cybersecurity product that is, to me, an exact replica of what Zscaler does. It can protect uh, your enterprise workers 
from your device, goes through the edge network and is able to protect their traffic to all the SaaS services that your workers use. And then they also have a zero trust product that allows your customers to authenticate and, and access internal APIs as well. So that's the two halves of Zscaler. Cloudflare debuted in January and then the pandemic hit and they made free for, until September 1st. Recently during their cybersecurity week, they released a whole bunch of additional products and are now wrapping what they call Cloudflare for Teams, which is access and gateway products, into a broader picture called Cloudflare One. And this is more of a direct competitor to Zscaler all around. It is wrapping up their other features like web application firewall, DDoS protection into their uh, Cloudflare for Teams product. So it's all about enterprise protection, but it's protecting your workers and your apps uh, in, in one. And so I think they've just added Zscaler's TAM to their own with yeah. these moves over this past year. And so that's really not accounted for in the pricing today. Right. Uh, and I, the, the reason you'd want to look at, uh, the reason people, you'd own a stock here is because you believe they can have sustainable high revenue growth for multiple years. That's the reason this would be end up being successful. Um, and that's just what you have to decide. And I guess, you know, if they're adding that, if you believe that's going to be true, um, there's no reason you want to hold on to your shares. But we'll hit the wrap-up questions here. Uh, first one we always ask, what is one financial saying that you disagree with? Uh, most of them. <laughs> uh, people saying it's different this time and mock in mocking tones, maybe, where uh, okay. things do change. Things right. have changed. Okay. So the whole reason uh, in my whole uh, portfolio thesis is, Recurring revenue changed everything. Recurring revenue. You no longer have to sell X number of widgets and then X number of widgets plus a percent the following year is the traditional sales paradigm. Now you've got recurring revenue from subscribers that's locked in month to month and you have churn on top of that. But then you can start eking out calculations like net expansion rate. My customer cohort from last year is now spending X percent more this year than they were last. And so you can really get a vision into the stickiness of their platform, how much customers are growing. It's not, they're not starting from zero baseline every year. It's, they've got starting at their existing subscribers and moving forward from there. And so I think it is different this time with those particular, with SaaS companies. It's a, it's a different paradigm of company and it's really? extremely exciting to me. We're, we're guilty yeah. of that. Of <laughs> saying really it's like that yeah, we're guilty. Yeah, yeah. That's good. What is uh, one piece of advice you have for any investors? Uh, I, I always take, I always answer note-taking. It's su such an easy thing to do. And I take a humongous amount of notes, but just as for any individual investor, keeping track of your own thought process, because it's so easy to get swept up in the emotion. It's clearly an emotional day today. Right. <laughs> right. I think I, my portfolio is down 10% probably today. But then again, it's up well over 100% year to date. So it, keep notes about why you're making the moves you are so that you can refer back to them. But I, I, I try to ignore most of the day-to-day uh, -day 
Twitter rantings of folks, and I certainly contributed to a little bit, but I keep notes on everything about all the moves that these companies are doing. I look at earnings. I listen to the earnings report. Uh, I keep a very condensed portfolio so that I can keep track of the companies that I follow extremely closely. And so I have a high level of conviction in the companies that I own and, and, and think that they're better than the ones on my watch list because I follow them so closely. I know the moves that their platforms are making. I can continue to watch the, the, the growth levers, the customer levers, the operational leverage. Uh, you know, I can look over all of that over time and just keep back and referring to my notes over and over again. So I think notes is, is, is the most important thing you can do as an investor. Okay. And then uh, lastly, before we go, where can people find you? It's your Twitter is hypergrowth with three H's and then it's hypergrowth.com. Am I getting that right? It is. Okay. It's well, hypergrowth. You got to yeah, yeah. You you carry those H's. Okay. But All yes, right. I, I've, I've got a, a, a Twitter brand and a, and a blog. So I've kind of, I've, I've been writing on the Motley Fool for uh, a couple of years or decades, but kind of focused on this technology explanation for the past two years. Nice. And so I finally took it to a blog this past summer. Once I had a little more free time, I kind of packaged it up as a blog in order to, uh, you know, kind of keep this, keep this up and, and, and make it a thing. And so, yeah, that's the, the Twitter is, is three H's hypergrowth and three H's in hypergrowth.com. Perfect. Right. Well, we'll make sure to put it in the show notes and we love reading your stuff. So we hope you keep up, uh, keep up putting out good keep content. Writing. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks. Thank I, I appreciate being on the uh, uh, podcast. It's been, it's been a lot of great content lately with Tim Byers and Beth Kindig yeah. and, and such. It's Sweet. We'll try to watch. keep it up too. All right. Thank you. Thank you both. Welcome back in. Thanks again to Muji for joining us. Had a blast. Next we should week. say, we should say for sure where you can find him because it's hypergrowth with three H's. Dot right. Com. Dot com. All right. Cause it is confusing and the stuff is really, really well. Don't want people to get lost. And he has a sub stack as well. So you can just check out his Twitter yeah. and you'll definitely find all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but our hot waters now, I just have two for this week. I only have one cause you took one of mine, but so light week. Okay. So my first one is beyond meat is in hot water. Um, mm. McDonald's has developed its own plant-based burger called the Mick plant. Are we okay with that name? <laughs> Yeah, I, I just think as someone that doesn't even eat meat myself, I laugh because I have no no one actually wants these things, but it it's, just makes me jo- it makes me laugh. Doesn't doesn't it seem weird that like I don't know the McDonald's and the Pizza Hut crowd would be into the fake meat? That seems <sighs> like the I don't, it seems like they're going about the wrong addressable market. Like yeah. they go to McDonald's for that food. Yeah, I don't think it's a huge deal. Um I guess I don't want to say either that no one wants these things. I just think the demand is a lot lower than um people are estimating. Yeah. But I don't know, beyond meat there's a, some smart people on Twitter that I've seen that are still, you know, long the stock. I just think there's not a lot of margin of safety and I I don't think there's any technical advantage. I don't think there's much of a moat at all. Yeah. Well, it sucks for anyone that's owning shares, I guess. That's well, that's hey, take. Hey, they're, uh, they, I could be wrong. I could easily be wrong. All right. And uh, Dr. Fauci is in hot water this week as well because really? apparently there's a new thing called Fauciing. Um, so it's when someone declines to date someone else because they aren't taking COVID seriously. Uh, the example that was used was if I had a nickel for every time I Fauciied someone this year, I could pay off my student loans. 
But that was from a match group thing, right? I don't know if that was from a match group thing. It feels like an Urban Dictionary thing. Uh, but have you been using this term? No. Can't say that I have much uh, experience out there in the, the dating world right now. So. <laughs> I don't know. I thought that was funny. It's right. good. What it's else good. Do you have? Uh, Robert Smith, this one's serious, founder of Vista Equity is in hot water. He agreed to pay a $139 million fine in an international tax fraud scheme. If you want to look up maybe the scummiest fund of all time, I look up Vista Equity. They were buying shares of companies that they already owned or like they would take a stake in someone with one of their own companies and then take a stake with a fund. So it's just they were doing a lot of financial engineering to manipulate um, what the values of their private investments were. Very SoftBank-esque. But really, actually, they were doing quite illegal things. Not to say SoftBank isn't. uh, The story's not out with them, but yeah. And it was a tax... Fraud charge of what? A uh, hundred and thirty-nine million dollar fine. He agreed to pay, and yeah, they're hiding stuff in the Caribbean. I think they're not not like treasure chests, but like you know, you think- money and bank <laughs> accounts in the Caribbean. Don't you think uh, this is probably going on all over the place? Yes, definitely. And I also I just realized. Or go ahead. It's just like a few people have to take the fall, or they Ye- get caught. Yeah, I mean the Caymans are they're a real thing. I mean that's where Alibaba. That's the shares you're buying and. If you buy Alibaba in the United States, you're just buying a Cayman Island entity that buys shares of Alibaba, I think. Um, somehow you are your money is passed through the Cayman Islands. So there's a lot of interesting things down there in those tax shelters. But I was going to say, did you ever see the quote about Masa's son? This reminds me, I didn't have this down, where he was like, they talked about how he's losing a lot of money on those uh, short-term options that they're trying to do with tech stocks. Lost like $3 billion, I believe, which is, again, don't mess around with weekly options. Um, but they said that, you know, Masa-san is putting the 300-year plan, remember that? Yes. Putting the 300-year plan on a back burner to focus on buying short-term call options on the latest tech names. And I was like, well, that's a change in strategy right there. He's, uh, He's an erratic man. There's never been, I've never read one good headline with him involved. Not he, a single one. Well... Just the, I mean, the Alibaba stake saved him. Yeah. Okay. Uh, buy, sell, hold this week. The theme is companies that Michael Berry owns, who is very active on Twitter, and he's been getting back into like the financial grind. I hope. Yeah, I hope. I mean, he was very political for most of his tweets, but I think now that the election's over, we're getting like the best of Mike. We're getting the uh, big <laughs> show, Michael Berry. The uh, I want to just say, Michael Berry, I know you're listening. Uh, that please stick to finance on twitter i don't want to not follow you. i want to follow you you know yeah it's just it, it might ruin some people's timelines but uh here are the three companies facebook altria and cvs mary altria better sin stock than facebook uh i'll hold cvs i don't know much about i don't know uh, i'll sell cvs cvs is the second largest holding yeah i like all three but facebook is something that i don't want to touch just because i think there's a lot of um tail risk with them and i think that i just don't like their ethics at all i know i typically don't like to invest i typically don't care about ethics because i do like altria group but in this case i think the ethics might actually impact the business because it can't go on like if all these problems go on and on and on you know uh girls getting you know more suicides 
tripling or whatever the number was, you know, I mean, democracy in a few countries, that's a big thing. I think I'd rather own some cigarettes. Just that's a personal choice people can make to uh, give themselves lung cancer. But yeah, I guess I'll sell Facebook, hold CBS. I do buy, think it's, it's worth a, saying people because I, I talked about Altria on Twitter before and some people were like, ah, feels like it's dead. It's like, okay, when we say we're marrying Altria, this is the best performing stock ever. Yeah, and marrying the dividends reinvested. Yeah, and I get some. If some people aren't comfortable with owning Ultra, it's whatever you know. You make your yeah. own choice, but I'm comfortable owning it, and I think it's. Um, if it's a, I mean, it's not an equity offering, so we're not yeah. helping the business. It's just changing hands. I don't know. Yeah, I would. I would maybe marry it as well, and it there's a incredibly high floor with that business. Yes, um, feels like you're buying with a. A lot of margin of safety there. Six to, uh, 400 year track record of people liking the tobacco. Tobacco. So I think that's huge, huge regulatory moat. Um, yes. But yeah. I might bang Facebook. Wait, um, no, we changed it. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Not bang. Uh, hold, hold, hold your, yeah. If you're listening in the car with your children, <laughs> that's when, that's when you, uh, yeah, sorry. Hold Facebook. And I don't know enough about CBS, but seems super steady. They did that partnership with, uh, Elizabeth Holmes though. So, Big red flag. Yeah. Um, anecdotal evidence this week. I have two. Need to give an update. I flew down to Arizona and back this week, so I've got to give an update on the current aerospace industry. Flew Alaska Airlines. Both flights were pretty full. I like Alaska. Make it out what you will. We're not going to give you any advice, but, <laughs> you know, is it time to buy the dip on Alaska? Maybe. If, uh, if, if, was, if I had owned any airline stock, it would probably be Alaska. They have the great membership program. In my old job, people, uh, they, they, the guys that I would work with that flew all the time, they got a membership with, or they had the mileage program with Alaska, which anyone could do, but they also got the credit card with a bunch of points and things like that. So they were like, we are not flying anything but Alaska. I think they have a lot. I mean, other people copy that. That's not exclusive to Alaska, but I think they have great customer service. So. Okay, and my second anecdotal evidence, I watched Holidate this week. Um, yeah, I know. Don't make fun of me. Right? Uh, <laughs> Gotta watch The Queen's Gambit. I thought it was Gambit. terrible. What's, what I, even it, is it? I don't even... It's like a rom-com Christmas movie that's a Netflix original. Uh, I don't think Netflix, I think they talked about this on Animal Spirits, but I don't think they can get movies right. They, like, mm. Their movies have sucked compared to their shows. Yeah, I like Trial of the Chicago 7. It was solid. I would try that one out. But a lot of their movies have sucked. Yeah, they, I like their flops. I'd say I've probably watched 10 on Netflix. The only ones I've really liked are Extraction and uh, Trial of the Chicago 7. But we'll see. We'll see. Give them maybe, I'd say give them a year more. If they haven't tr- solved that issue in a year, uh, it may be like, well, these guys have an issue. They're wasting a ton of money on this. Yeah. Uh, what do you have? Okay, there was a nice tweet from Dennis Hong that I think was an, a good contrarian take. He said something about investing in capital-intensive businesses. Let me load it up. He said, unlike many investors who prefer asset-light businesses, we love capital-intensive businesses as we believe the capital, time, and complexity of building out an asset-heavy business creates ecosystem control. Thoughts on that? Yeah, there are definitely some real tangible benefits to uh, the capital that you have to put in to certain businesses like and i 
I don't know. I mean, people are saying that like software moats now are a thing, but it's tougher. Physical moats are very real, and they're they're also easier to identify, though. In my yeah. opinion, economies of scale are very easy to identify. The, uh, this came about because there's a modest proposal tweet he brought up this from this book. Um, the Meg Whitman, the old CEO of eBay, had this quote. They have all these warehouses and inventory they're so proud of. I'm glad we don't have to deal with any of that. She was referencing, uh, as people might expect, Amazon. So one of the worst takes of all time. Um, that's going to be in history right there. Sorry, Meg Whitman. I know you're smart, but yeah, it's a tough take. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely benefits to... Uh real infrastructure especially for a company that's like sole purpose is logistics yeah and e-commerce so all right uh that's gonna do it then no i got one more this will end with a fun one you remember neo yes they have they're i don't know how many cars they sell they don't sell very many they have a 60 billion dollar market cap right now are you in or are you in i have not i have no knowledge on that i saw you taking some heat on twitter for that uh oh there's one guy that talked about batteries as a service which um let's just say i disagree with that uh i think all the ev companies are going to be dead money yeah it's just total dead money not even like dead money for five years there it's, it's like cannabis companies hype. yeah it's the hype that rubs me the wrong way hyped up stocks are usually if they're talking about it on fast money if they're talking about it on mad money is likely a stock you don't want to touch even if you like the business, wait. It's probably hyped up. I don't know. Good rule of thumb. That's going to do it this week. Thank you, Muji, once again to uh, for joining us. Uh, what, what are the disclosures? Oh, CCM. Use our User. code CCM for 7investing. Yep. Um, we are not financial advisors. Anything we say or discuss here on Chit Chat Money is not formal advice or recommendation. Feel free to tweet at us for any shows you want us to do. I think we have one in the queue from someone. Um, or email us. It's chitchatmoneypodcast at gmail.com. Thank you guys for listening. We'll see you next week. Thank mm-hmm. you.